Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And uh, this morning, as the birds are singing outside, uh, and I can hear some dogs barking in the distance, I want to talk to you about the history of animals. And I just want to preface this by saying I don't really care a lot about animals personally. I'm not an animal lover. I had a dog when I was younger, but uh, throughout my life I really didn't grow up around animals, and I'm the sort of person who, when you go to a house and there's a super friendly dog who charms the pants off of everybody, and the dog goes from person to person sniffing crotches and being like dog-like, uh, I get really uncomfortable. I'm not really great around animals. Um, I like corgis, like the dog breed corgi, but more kind of as an image or a, uh, an idea than actually a real physical thing that, you know, sheds. Um, I would probably be a much better cat owner, but I'm allergic to cats. That's just a little preface to say that even though I personally don't care about animals, I think that they're really important in history. Understanding the relationship with humans and the non-human living world is incredibly important. And one of the big lenses that people today use to understand this non-human living world is their relationship with their pets. But let's start a little bit earlier than the modern world, right? So in those Western Civ classes that you might have taken in middle school or high school, or if you're a little bit younger, the world history classes that you took in middle school and high school, animals are incredibly present in the early stages of humanity. In part, this makes sense because the big story that these classes tell is the evolution of humans from kind of animalistic creatures who don't have cities or writing or, you know, agriculture to uh, people who do have cities and writing and agriculture. And so in these early stages, part of the story is how humans start to distinguish themselves from the animal world. Uh, and so those early stages of humanity involve domestication. Domestication of plants like wheat and rice, and domestication of animals. Dogs, goats, sheep, cows. I remember when I was a kid and I went through this Western Civ series, I was incredibly interested in the Egyptian relationship with animals. I lived in Chicago and there are lots of uh, Egyptian antiquities in Chicago because of some weird historical accident. And I remember going to the Oriental Institute, which is the uh, museum that Indiana Jones is basically working for in all the Indiana Jones movies, and looking through all of the cases showing all the Egyptian mummies and being really shocked because I used to think that they just mummified people, but the Egyptians mummified their pets and just animals. They would mummify crocodiles and cats and birds and treat them with the same sort of honor that they treated people. Um, I mean, Egyptians, as we all know, probably were really, really obsessed with their cats. They were like the internet. They loved painting their cats and, you know, making little statues of their cats and uh, uh, even mummifying them when beloved cats died. Uh, and a fun fact, in my new institution, University of California at Berkeley, our library has an incredibly large collection of mummified crocodiles. 
Uh, and why are these in the library, you might ask? And why do we have so many of them? Well, these mummified crocodiles were actually kind of like uh, uh, bookcases for papyri back in some sort of uh, uh, Egyptian time period that I don't know enough about Egyptian history to know off the top of my head. Yet as we get closer and closer to the modern world, our history ignores animals more and more and more. Uh, two different strands of history seek to overcome this. The first is a history that goes under this banner of animal studies. And animal studies is kind of sexy right now. It seeks to show both the changing human attitudes towards animals, to see the cultural formations of this human-animal boundary, uh, in, because it's in some ways intellectually interesting in its own right. And also it has a greater moral purpose as part of the animal rights movement, to see animals as having a history, to see uh, animals' history as being deeply influenced by the decisions that humans make. And furthermore, to give animals agency in this story, to give them respect, to give them a place in history itself, to make them being able to change the course of history the same way that other actors can change the course of history. The other strand of history that wants to put animals back into history uh, is environmental history. And environmental history looks to see the relationship between the human and the environmental as uh, a feedback loop. Humans influence the environment, the environment influences humans. Uh, ideally, these big boundaries that I've just set up between the human and the environmental are kind of blurred. And so we want to include as part of this environmental history, not only stuff about climate or uh, resources, but also stuff about the non-human world, stuff about plants and animals and cows and deer. Uh, a great example of this is in a fantastic book called Creatures of Empire, which looks at how early American settlers, uh, white settlers of North America, uh, had a lot of their in, uh, interactions with Native Americans uh, affected by their different understandings of the human-animal relationship. Uh, people from England had a particular kind of relationship with animals. Rich people hunted, domestic animals were something that was precious and enclosed and taken care of very, very, very carefully. Uh, in Native American culture, everybody hunted and domestic animals were a lot more kind of everybody's property uh, and a lot less domesticated. These different understandings of what animals were led to clashes between uh, native peoples and white settlers. Uh, a white settler might have a cow with a particular collar around it that would identify that cow as theirs. And even though they couldn't enclose it like they might do back in England, they still thought of it as their property, even if they just shoot it away to the common lands to graze. Native Americans do not have this sense of property over animals and might do something like, well, hunt the cow, uh, which led to property disputes. But generally, the story of animals in history is that as we get closer and closer to the modern world, the more and more animals don't matter. Animals start to move to the edges of our daily experience the closer we are to modernity. In the 
caricature of the traditional world, for instance, we might think of peasants living in little huts cheek by jowl with their animals. Uh, they sleep with their pigs, the chickens are pecking around outside, there are uh, cows out there. Uh, I mean, really, uh, we can see this through how rural people often got the fuel for lighting their houses. Uh, cow dung and horse dung was often kept to uh, use as kind of bespoke uh, jury-rigged candles in the wintertime when there wasn't a lot of firewood. And then as you get even closer to the 20th century, uh, we replace, you know, horses with cars. Because of refrigerated shipping, cows move out of the urban environment um, and start to just be slaughtered in slaughterhouses far away from places where anybody might ever see them. The world becomes fully human as animals are forced out of it. We can call this narrative the nature's loss narrative, that as we gain this new kind of modernity, we are pushed even further away from the animal. It's an extension of that narrative that we opened the show with, the Western Civ narrative, that, you know, the story of humanity is the story of our evolution away from the animal. In the 20th century, we are so far away from the animal that we are disconnected from it. And I mean, there's a great deal of truth in this narrative, even though a lot of people will challenge it. When I went to the uh, hill uh, villages in Vietnam, one of the things that was really, really striking was just how many animals they were. These weren't wild animals by any stretch of the imagination. They were domesticated, but they were just everywhere. As you walked up and down uh, the little pathways, you would see pigs, you know, browsing through the grasses, you know, suckling piglets. You'd see water buffalo knee-deep in rice paddies. There were chickens and baby chickens and dogs and puppies. And once we saw two dogs having sex on the side of the road, and we were really, really bemused. And our guide looked at us like, yeah, didn't you always see dogs just having sex on the side of the road? So I want to stress that this is something that happens. Animals do move out of our daily experience. But the divisions we set up are a little bit too stark. And one way that we can change this story is by looking at the history of pets. Um, in the 18th century, we start to see a new shift in this nature's loss narrative. An increasing number of people in Britain move out of the countryside and into cities. In the countryside as well, they start to have this new kind of relationship to production and consumption, which we know as the consumer revolution. People buy a lot more stuff, and there is a lot greater variety of things to buy. And this development of consumer culture does not leave animals behind it. Animals become a focus of consumptive activity. There now are pet shops and, you know, uh, pet clothing shops and menageries that sell an increasing variety of exotic and domestic animals. This is the time period where we get the development of many of the dog breeds that we know and love today, because people are starting to breed dogs not just for use, not just to like herd cattle and uh, turn spits in the house and catch rats and ferrets, but as part of a fashionable culture of display. And we can see this perhaps as the creation of animal unemployment. Domestic animals, purely domestic animals in the city, 
don't have as much of a use as animals did back in the countryside. Uh, They're kept for their affection. They're kept for us to pet and to take around with us and to have names. And so this gives a little bit of a weird spin to this nature's loss narrative. At the same time as the modern world is meant to be stripping away uh, all of the common space between humans and animals, the same modern world, the same forces of urbanization, globalization, and commercialization are creating a new space of animal-human interaction through pets. And this is not inconsequential. This is not merely trivial. Lots and lots and lots of people keep pets and think about them a lot and care about them, and they represent a really, really important part of people's everyday lives. There's a number of of clear events that can show how this is happening. In the 18th century, we don't just have a rise in pet stores, but a rise in consumer goods made especially for pets. The dog collar, for instance, moved away from being a practical bit of protection to keep uh, the delicate necks of hunting and fighting dogs uh, from getting ripped out during the chase and the hunt and all that to being these items of consumer goods. Uh, They were often literally bejeweled, you know, made out of silver or ornate leather, uh, studded with diamonds, and they included the name of the animal. They stopped being something purely practical and instead became something that we might call cultural, something that was meant to show us not just about the uses that the animal were put to, but the ideas of the animal that the animal's owner had. Uh, We can see this as well through the rise of naming animals. Dogs got names increasingly. Dogs moved from outside to inside the house. People got portraits, including their dogs, where the dog, as with the person whose portrait is being painted, looks at the viewer in this moment of mutual recognition. And animal owners have a uh, increasing emotional attachment to their animals, which they are increasingly, you know, willing to share with other people. In letters and diaries, people write about their relationships with their animals as they write about their family. Um, people uh, sometimes mourn the deaths of beloved animals, like their pet monkeys, and have portraits painted of them after they died so that they remember them. We can see this perhaps in the development of that weird thing, the pet cemetery. The pet is human enough, beloved enough, to be deserving of the respect of burial and remembrance. But the pet is obviously not human, so it can't be buried in the human cemetery. Now, the person who writes about this the most, uh, Tog, who, who has a book called Animal Companions, argues that animals are liminal creatures, that they exist on the line between the new domestic sphere and the old sphere of uh, animalistic, you know, mess. I kind of disagree. I think that pets are purely domestic, and it's humans who, in the 18th century, start to become liminal. The lapdog and the unemployed woman of fashion are both creatures only of the home. They only serve to consume the products of productive society. People who work, poorer women and men, 
they're the people who are liminal. They're the people who go from the domestic out into the public. They are the people who have this uneasy relationship both to the public world of striving and struggling and profit and to the private world of emotion, care, and sentimentality. But that's a little bit uh, off track because I want to talk about how this new understanding of the emotional relationship between humans and animals can trouble some of our ideas about what objects and actors we include in history. So the animal studies folks want to tell these kinds of stories about animals in history in order to accord animals the respect of being historical actors, of having something that historians called agency. They can change history just like humans can, maybe to a lot less of a degree, but they're still important actors in history. But I think that when we make this move, we lead unintentionally perhaps to an expansion of agency beyond living things that may trouble the animal studies folks. Because at the same time as there is this expanding emotional bond between humans and animals in the 18th century, where animals are used to think through problems of deep cultural import, there's also a similar rise in people's emotional relationship with inanimate objects. And if we see the story about animals as giving animals agency, as giving animals this respected role in history, then we also have to see the increasing role of emotional relationships with objects as giving objects agency in history. It's one thing to say that a dog can have some kind of historical role. It's another thing to say that a toy can, or a scientific instrument, or a new kind of chemical process. So I just want to run through a couple ways in which we can see this perhaps kind of weird story about objects having an increased emotional role in the 18th and 19th centuries. A great example of this is the development of the bourgeois home itself. The home starts to become increasingly important in the 18th and 19th century as the site of middle-class culture. And what do you do with a home? Well, you fill it up with objects of intense meaning. Months back, uh, we talked about the development of the Victorian home, and we talked about Deborah Cohen's book Household Gods, which discusses the rise of interior decorating in the Victorian era. And in this period, interior decorating was incredibly important as an expression of the family's belief in itself, of its the way that it saw itself. People weren't, you know, uh, puritanically evangelical, thinking they had to strip away every single nice bauble that they owned. They used objects as telling stories about their families. Um, a perhaps even clearer role of how objects have this kind of agency is in objects that get their own names. Of course, ships get names, but that's not because humans have an emotional connection with them. But carriages get names, cars and bikes get names. Uh, today, you probably know a number of people whose computers have names or whose iPhones have names. And in fact, today, we can see our relationships with the computer as a really, really uh, essential part of how objects have a deep emotional connection with us. Most men uh, have spent a great deal of their early sexual lives interacting with pornography on their computers. 
Uh, people play games on their computers. They speak with their friends and family over Skype on their computers. They learn about the world over computers. They work on computers. You are listening to my voice right now through computers. We spend our nights looking at computer screens in the darkness. We have an intense emotional connection with these inanimate objects. Finally, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the emotional connection that people have with their toys. Children's lives in the 18th and 19th centuries increasingly become separated out from uh, adults' lives. We understand childhood as this special realm where you don't work and instead have this playful relationship of learning with the world. And as this is happening, it becomes marked by the creation of new kinds of objects that are meant to help children have this playful relationship with the world. Toys, um, little ducks with wheels, sticks and hoops, board games, and increasingly elaborate forms of games played with balls and bats and all that other stuff. But this world of play is marked out by interactions not just among children, but interactions with children and objects. And as I thought of this, I thought of my own childhood, where I basically just walked around wanting toys all the time. And I thought, why is it that children's lives are marked by objects in a way that adults' lives are not? And I thought that this interaction with objects actually gives them a lot of freedom that their interaction with other people can never have. Because children have low status and low power, and also they have a, a much reduced understanding of the social world. They don't get as much pleasure from socializing uh, in, with adults. They can't participate in the same level as adults in most social situations. Objects, however, do not talk back. Objects, however, do not say that you cannot do something. Objects do not chide the child because they do not know social norms. Objects are not confusing and contradictory creatures that, you know, suddenly drink a glass of wine and start dancing and shouting when all throughout the rest of the week they were grumpy. Objects in other worlds operate as proxy social equals. And this might be one reason why our stereotype of people on the autism spectrum is that they have a lot more of an emotional connection with the world of objects and animals. And that is because uh, the world of objects and animals uh, gives people a, another way of socializing that is less high stakes. Similarly, uh, it might be why poor people uh, in America today have the stereotype of watching TV and drinking and taking drugs. This is an area outside of social life which is more controlled, an area of objects that gives emotional comfort and power and even agency to the people involved, even choice, even freedom, but that does not involve the kind of difficult and contradictory and confusing sets of social relations of the wider social world. In other words, the thing that I'm saying is, is that uh, being fully social members of a community, of going to dinner parties and parties and working and reading the newspaper and commenting on stuff, is a little bit of a social privilege that is denied people who are more marginal, people like children, 
and people who are uh, neurologically atypical and people who are poorer and people with less power. For these people, the world of objects might give another kind of realm of freedom, another kind of independence. And I'm talking about this all today to start to think through the problem of non-humans in history. And I don't want to include non-humans in history just as a kind of historiographical game where we find a new thing for historians to talk about so we can publish books and get tenure. I think that the problem of non-humans in history is incredibly important because the next set of political and moral problems that's going to be facing our generations is what is going to happen as global warming starts to change everything. And in this, the stories that we have to tell about where we've been going and where we've been have to do with these weird actors, not just politicians, not just the rise of democracy, not just globalization and post-colonialism, but our actors expand to weird stuff like carbon dioxide and sulfur dioxide and the albedo effect and the carbon cycle and the nitrogen cycle, and we start to have to include new kinds of actors in our history. And to do that, we need to be able to tell stories about these actors, stories that still have emotional resonance, stories about the invisible violence of environmental change that let us understand it in a way that we can include other people. But this makes history weird too, including these news actors kind of dilutes the power of the individual more and more and more, even more than the social and the cultural turn ever did. And this is a problem because one of the difficulties of my generation is that we feel like all that we can be is representatives of particular groups. The individual doesn't seem to have much power, and including non-humans reduces that power even more. Finally, it also presents deep problems because it makes us look at human life from an intensely large scale. If one of the triumphs of history over the past 20 or 30 years is that we've learned to tell stories of globalization that keep intact the local and contingent uh, uh, developments that actually make globalization work, if we understand that the post-colonial moment is one in which uh, the universalities of Western liberal culture are challenged by, you know, local and uh, particular uh, forms of identity, that doesn't work for global warming. Because global warming is something that is made collectively by the species. E individuals didn't do it. Similarly, it affects us collectively as a species. Individuals won't be particularly affected, and neither will be classes. Everybody will be affected in weird ways. So tomorrow we're going to get deeper into this question uh, as we talk about the history of coal smog and smoke and use that to understand histories of pollution. And hopefully I'm going to connect it a little bit with how we might be able to make uh, stories of global warming that give a kind of emotional resonance that allows us to include uh, the individual and the local. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thanks to Duncan Barton for the image and Jonathan Lear for the music. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes. Give us seven stars or ten. Um, 
that's a joke because they only go up to five. Uh, tweet about us, share us on social media, do all of those things that you do with media that you like. Uh, thanks very much, and I'll see you guys tomorrow.